what I'd like to do is a quick exercise. The exercise is I want you to close your eyes if you, if you can and to think about your own mortality. What that means is just to think about the fact that you, really, you never know when your time is going to end. You never know when your time on earth is going to end. And the reason that I, I want to bring this up is because I think that's the message that coronavirus is really trying to bring to all of us. We live, I mentioned this a couple of times previously on Zoom, we live in a society that loves to deny death. We love to run away from death. A lot of our rituals, a lot of the things that we do are in order to really steer our heads away from death. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. It's a great, it's a great thing to live in a life you know, upholding society, a society that celebrates life and kind of distances itself from death. But I think there are certain things to be learned just by recognizing that you never know when your time could end. And that I think is supposed to allow you to really make every moment more poignant in your life. Sam Harris is a beautiful meditation. Whenever you're doing anything, he says, it's a great exercise just to imagine that whatever you're doing at this point right now in this moment, this might be the last time you ever do that. So yesterday I was having a catch with my sister, a baseball catch and with my father. I imagined that for a few seconds, imagine this is the last time I'm ever going to have a catch with my sister or with my father. And it added such an emotion to me at that moment to realize, you know what? And, and it really very well could be. I hope it's not but it really added a tremendous amount for me. And I was very grateful to have that experience. So think about your life up to this point. And I want you to think of two very significant challenges that you faced during your time here on earth, right? And these should be challenges that are not just simple challenges, but real challenges that caused you a significant amount of pain. But don't just think about the challenges. Think about the two challenges. And I want you to think how you got through them. I want you to think about how it brought you to where you are today. So just take a second to, to ponder that idea. And I want you to think, you know, if you had the capability, if, you, if I gave you a magic button right now to press, you could press this button and you never would have gone through those challenges. They would have just disappeared from existence. You never would have had them. Would you press that button? Now, a lot of people might instinctively say, yes, remembering that emotion, remembering that, remembering that pain is very difficult for us very often. So we just want to press that button. We want to forget about it. But a lot of us, as we mature, we realize that it really formed us. These were formative experiences. You know, the cliche is, and I'll say it anyway, because I think it's very appropriate, a diamond is just a bunch of carbon atoms. But then when it goes into the crucible, when it gets a lot of pressure on it, it forms into something really beautiful. And I think that's what we, we could realize about our own lives. It's, a, it's the challenges that form us into who we are. So during this time of coronavirus, I think the thing that we really need to have driven home for us is what are we learning from this? What are we gaining from this? How are we going to build a better life as a result of this? I think Hashem is really bringing us this in order to urge us and say, listen, wake up. Don't go back to the same routine you were going to. Who here is going to take for granted the next time they see their friends? You're not going to take it for granted. You're going to appreciate it. The next time you get to go to shul and pray in a minyan. These are things we took for granted for so long. It barely registered. Going to the grocery store without a mask. That's going to be a tremendous thing for us.
So I think coronavirus is, is one of the wisest teachers if we allow it to be just that. So it's another challenge that we're all being called upon to, to surpass and to grow from. So, so I think this is an interesting way of thinking. You know, if we could see our individual challenges, this is of course a national and a worldwide pandemic. It's a worldwide challenge. But what if our unique individual challenges are the same thing? What, what if they're really nothing less than an invitation from God to allow him into our lives? What if Hashem is saying, and you know what, I think it could be really be this. I think every single challenge that we face could be this. And you know what? It could also not be this. You are the one who determines whether or not you allow this challenge to be an invitation for God into your life. And I've said this many times. If you believe and if you fully feel that everything that happens to you in life is really just a coincidence, you know what? It's going to be a coincidence. It's almost like me, and but if you allow it to be something that is transforming you as a person, it really will be that. And it connects you to a deeper level of existence, of course, to Hashem. So we need to allow these things to, to wake us up from our routines, just like coronavirus is doing for us now. So now you'll see on your screen, and this is pretty important. I'm glad we have Zoom to do this. You'll see on your screen a very interesting chart. And have you ever heard of a chiasm? Raise your hand or give a thumbs up if you ever heard of a chiasm before. Very good. So basically, you might know a chiasm is like an ABC, CBA structure. The point of the chiasm is to make you kind of notice the center point. And at that center point lies a huge, either a transition point or the main point of that chiasm. So we're on Yom Atzmaut today. We, we think about Jewish history. We think about everything that Am Yisrael has gone through from the beginning of uh, Abraham's journey until this very moment. We're continuing to write that story. And I look at Jewish history, especially I read the Torah, and I see a person like Yosef, and I, I think the reason why he's so unique is because we never see God outright speaking to Yosef HaSadiq. And yet, amazingly, he's one of those people that every moment he gets, he attributes what's going on to God. And everything that happens to him, he, he, he says, this is God's doing. We never see him receive an explicit message from God. He gets these dreams, of course. He gets these cryptic messages. But he's not receiving any clear-cut nevuot like we've seen from other nevi'im. So Rabbi David Foreman has a great question. He says, I don't understand. How is it that Yosef HaSadiq is able to proclaim that this is God's doing? And I think he does something brilliant with this chiasm, this, this chart that you're going to see was really inspired by him, mostly. He shows you, really, he takes you through, and that's what I want to do with you now, taking you through exactly how it was that Yosef figured out what was going on in his life and what was going on with the dreams of Paro. So let's take a look. So Yosef really hits his low point when he ends up in jail, right? He, he thought things were looking up for him. He, he was bought by Potiphar, one of these really high-ranking officials. And he thought to himself, you know what? Now I've made it. I've gotten through all the difficulties. My brothers sold me for God's sake. And now I have things looking up for me. And of, of course, we know the story. He doesn't uh, kind of succumb to temptation. Rather, he withholds himself and he, he doesn't allow himself to do the immoral thing. And as a result, he's thrown in jail. So you can imagine a person like Yosef, his whole life, he's attributing things to God, and now he's in jail. It's almost like you look up at God, you shake a fist, you say, how could you do this to me? 
my whole life, all I'm doing is following your path. And I think a lot of us have, have felt this way in the past. You know, you, you try to do the right thing. You try to stay on the right path. You try to you pick what you think is correct. And then you feel abandoned by God. You feel like God doesn't really care about you. And that's probably the lowest point you could get to. But even in jail, Yosef has this tremendous inner strength. And I think it's not just Yosef. I think every one of us has that inside of us. He has such an inner strength that he doesn't allow himself to get into that negative thought pattern. He continues to believe and to proclaim, no, God is involved in my life. And I think it's really very much a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you keep proclaiming that to yourself, not just with Yosef, but if you take life that way, it really will be that way. So what happens? Yosef is thrown into the pit. And look at the interesting way that the Torah says it. The Torah says, Sorry, after he's taken out of the pit by the servants of Paro, it says they took him out of the board. Well, what's interesting is it really wasn't called a pit before this. It was called a bet sohar. It was called a jail. So the question is, why is the Torah changing the word here? Why does it use the word pit? Anybody have a, a, an inkling? Anybody have an idea why the Torah would be using this word? You're all on mute. So if you have something to say, you could just unmute yourself. Because his brothers threw him into a pit. Very good. Exactly. Thank you, Robert. Yes. So the point is the Torah is intentionally doing something. It's intentionally blurring the lines between when Yosef was really thrown into an actual pit and right here, right now, when he's in a jail. So the Torah is using its words very wisely on purpose in order to make me remember that. And look, that's the first part of our chiasm. That's the very center portion of our chiasm. It's saying Yosef's lowest point right now, where he's being kind of in the, in the jail, being taken out, it's look, things are looking up, reminds us of the lowest point earlier in the story when he was thrown in the pit by his brothers. How about the next thing we read? He's going to repot all, oh, he's a, a king. So Yosef, of course, needs to wear kingly garb. He needs to get a haircut, right? And what, the thing that happens right before he was thrown in the pit by his brothers over here, what was it? They took off his ketonet pasim. And that's more similar to royal garb than you realize, because if you look, there's only one other time in the Tanakh that we hear about ketonet pasim. I'll be very impressed. If anybody knows this, what's the other time in the Tanakh that we hear about Ketonet Pasim? I'm thinking. Very, very difficult. I'm not going to lie. This is a hard one. All right, so I'll tell you. It is in. Hold on. Is it Mordechai? No, but close. It's in the story of Amnon and Tamar, right? When Amnon and Tamar, when he, he rapes his sister, a terrible story, but his sister would wear the royal ketonet pasim. And it explains to you in that pasuk that the ketonet pasim was worn by the kingly people. So we know that what Yosef was wearing, and it's, by the way, it adds a tremendous understanding to our story, with Yaakov giving Yosef a ketonet pasim, the reader is supposed to realize this is, Yosef, this is Yaakov proclaiming who the chosen son is. He's saying, you're going to be like the king of your brothers. It's adding to the flame and the, of, of their hatred and their anger, right? So just like Yosef was stripped of the ketonet 
which was the symbol of his royalty among his brothers, he puts on now a ketonet-like garment before he goes to greet Paro. So what's the point of this so far? Let me just explain something. The Torah is using these specific linkages in order to tell me how Yosef figured all this out and what it was like to live through this experience from his perspective. This is a brilliant, brilliant way of the Torah kind of transporting your mind into the mind of Yosef, saying if you were Yosef, th these textual connections are the same feeling that Yosef had about, oh my God, I'm remembering what happened to me earlier in my life. I can't believe how similar this is. That feeling of Yosef is captured by these word linkages and these intertexts in the Torah. So he, he wears the special clothing. The next thing, he goes to Paro, the opposite of when he was going to his brothers, right? Because his brothers was, really hated him for his dreams. Here it's the exact opposite. Here he's going to greet a person who values him completely for his dreams. It couldn't be any more different. The only reason he was taken out of the pit is to go and interpret dreams. Isn't that funny? Because the reason he ended up in the pit in the first place was because he was interpreting dreams. So everything is being flipped on its head. And by the way, I wrote a whole paper about this for Megillat Esther, and there's tons of connections between Yosef and Megillat Esther. We're not going to get into that now, but the point is, right? It's the same kind of concept and the same kind of idea of God's hand in Jewish history. All right, so what does Yosef say? He gets the Paral. Now, you see D over here? I'll be very impressed if somebody could tell me what's so impressive about these words, halamti halom and halom halamti. We're talking about a chiasm here. Don't forget that. Who could tell me? They're flipped. Perfect. It's flipped. What does that mean? The words themselves are inverted. The word halamti halom, right? When Yosef had told his brothers, I dreamed a dream. Here he's telling Paro, uh, here Paro is telling him, halom halamti. So not only does it fit in the chiasm, right, where it's supposed to, about somebody dreaming a dream. Here, you, here was Yosef, here it's Paro. But even the words themselves are chiastic. Halamti halom, halom halamti. It's so brilliant, the way that the Torah is kind of doubling up on the same device, the same literary device. Okay, so now Yosef cannot believe his ears. He's going to Paro. He, he went through this whole hellish experience leading up to this, and his interpretation of dreams got him literally nowhere. And until now, he's realizing everything is flipping on its head. And he's hearing this from, from Paro. And now, um, now try to, again, try to take yourself and put yourself in Yosef's shoes hearing the next part. Right, so Paro opens his mouth. And now let me ask you a question. What language do you suspect Paro is speaking? Do you think Paro is speaking in Hebrew? Shake your head if you think yes or no. No. Paro is certainly not speaking in Hebrew. So what is the Torah doing here? Again, it's using the literary devices to emphasize the point for you. So what does Paro say? He says, Yosef, I want you to hear my dream. My dream was these cows came out of this river, these these fat cows, and he says, they were grazing in the, in the swamp. And ahu is such a rare word. I don't really know of any other time where it appears, probably appears once or twice 
at all in the rest of the Tanakh. Now, look over here at the other side of the chiasm. What happened right before Yosef told his brothers about the dream? He was shepherding with his brothers the flock. What does that mean? That means the Torah purposely used a very rare, strange word, ahu, because, because it has the same exact letters as the word ehav, right? So the Torah is saying, this is really magnificent. The Torah is telling you, look how Yosef feels. Yosef, when he's hearing the, 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 the dream of Paro, something about the dream of Paro made Yosef remember his brothers. It made him remember that experience of, you know, the, the, the cattle grazing and all that. Something reminded him about his own personal history. So he's starting to realize something unbelievable. He's starting to realize that the whole reason that he went through these harrowing experiences is specifically so that he can interpret this dream of Paro. He's saying, this is unbelievable. Hashem is an, un is an unbelievable being. He put me through all this because he wants me to play a role in this national event. And little did he know it's going to be a lot more than what he thinks. Right? So that's the first thing he hears from Paro. So the way that Paro describes the, the cows, what does he say? The cows are beriot basar bifotar. They're healthy. They're good-looking cows. If you know what happens right before that in the text earlier on, what's the way that Rahel and her family were described by the Torah? Rahel was a beautiful woman. Right? So, so what's the point of this? Yosef must have been thinking while he was going through this dream, he's thinking to himself, okay, you have Paro's dream involves seven cows and seven cows. This doesn't make any sense, he says. You know, the, the, the good-looking cows and the ugly cows, okay. If these are the Rahel cows, right, what happens? The, the skinny cows eat the good-looking cows, right? Virakot Basar, those are the skinny cows. They eat the, the, uh, the Yosef cows, right, the Rahel cows. That's the way he's thinking about it. You have the skinny cows, which reminds you of Look, it's a homophone. So something about the way Paro was describing the skinny cows versus the fat cows reminded Yosef of his mom's family and of, of Leah's family. So Yosef is very confused at this point. He thinks he understands something. He thinks that whatever's going on in Paro's dream is supposed to remind him of the conflict that he had between himself and his brothers. And what happens? The eating of one thing by another. What does that remind you of in this history of Yosef's life? Who could tell me? What does animals eating something have to do with Yosef's life? They said that he died because animals ate him. Beautiful. Yosef's father had said, Yosef. So Yosef is hearing this. He's like, I can't believe this. Everything that's happening in, in Paro's dream is almost word for word you know, uh, talking about my history and, and listening to all the events that happened to me. He says, but one thing doesn't add up. If these represent you know, the, the Le'ah cows and these represent the, the Rahel cows, why are there seven and seven? How many should there be? There should, in fact, be six and two, right? There's six children from Le'ah and two children from Rahel. So you know what, Yosef? He has this kind of aha moment, an epiphany. And this is exactly the key of everything. He realizes, oh my God, 
you know what? These don't represent the, my brothers and, and me. They represent Le'an and Rahil in a different way. What is seven and seven with regards to Le'an and Rahil? Who could tell me? What does seven have to do with Le'an and seven have to do with Rahil? The years he seven served years. for them. Beautiful. The amount of years that he, that he worked for each of his wives. So what that point is, he says, aha, the amount of cows doesn't mean my brothers. It means the amount of years that my father worked for each of them. And that was the key to interpreting Paro's dream and saying, oh, and your next dream is about wheat. Yeah, you're going to have seven years of Sabah and seven years of Ra'av. That's the whole point. And it's, it's that realization that unlocks everything for Yosef. And none of it would have been possible unless Yosef went through all these harrowing experiences in his life. Unless Yosef was the kind of person who took note of this. He kind of realized the melody and the rhythm to his life. And he said, you know, it's, I'm not just going to be tone deaf to what's happening to me. I think there really is a meaning to what's going on. I think there's a deeper meaning. And I, I think Hashem is challenging me to go a step beyond. Hashem is challenging me to say, you know what, I'm not going to get lost in the suffering. I'm going to see how it, where it takes me. And then years later, who else knows another thing that Yosef realizes? This is something unbelievable. Yosef, when his brothers finally come back and he sees them bowing down to him, what does that remind Yosef of when he sees his brothers bowing? Who remembers? The stars. The stars. Perfect. His own dreams from earlier in the story. So he's realizing, wow, Paro, you dreamt about me, but now my dreams from earlier on are dreams about you. They're dreams about the, the importance of what's happening in Egypt. What do I mean by that? Well, Yosef sees his brothers bowing down. He says, aha, now I understand. How many celestial bodies were there in Yosef's dream? How many stars were there? 11 stars. Perfect. And a moon and a sun. And a sun, perfect. So that, that's 13 total with an 11 and 2 split. What else do we know from, so Yosef learned from all this something. He learned that all these symbols represent amount of years. It's the same thing in his dream. There's a 13-year period going on in his own life. He was 17 when he was sold. How old was he when he got thrown into jail? Well, we know how old was he when he, when he went to Paro. He was 30 years old. So from 17 to 30 is 13 years. And it's, it's not just 13 years. It was 11 years until he got thrown in jail, two years in jail. And then he goes to meet Paro. So Yosef is like, oh my God. He's looking around at his life, all the suffering he went through. And he sees the, the amazing way that Hashem worked it all out in the end. And the way that everything really came true. And the fact that all these difficult experiences culminated in himself becoming what he became. And he took solace in the knowledge, you know what? Hashem is involved in my life. And I'm never going to stop having faith in that, no matter how bleak things look. And now, as promised, just to, we're, we're going to put a hold on the Yosef stuff. We could come back to it later if you guys like. Before we, we continue with anything else, I want to talk about Eddie Jacobson. So Eddie Jacobson is a very unique guy. Eddie Jacobson grew up, you know, in, in around the early 1900s. He, he befriended a guy named Harry. When he in, in around the year 1905, a few years later, they went into business together. This is in Kansas City, New, uh, um, in Missouri. And Eddie, by the way, is a Jewish guy. His friend Harry is not Jewish. And they, they started what's called a haberdashery store. We don't really have those anymore. 
basically those are hat stores. People would buy hats. And it was really successful for quite a few years until it wasn't, until the bottom really fell out of their entire enterprise. And they had to go their separate ways, but they were really close friends. They really hit it off from a very early age, Eddie and Harry. And of course, Eddie went on to continue selling other different things. And Eddie watched as his amazing friend, Harry S. Truman, became the president of the United States. So Eddie Jacobson, this Jewish guy, little did he know, he's friends in an early age with the future president of the United States. Now, why is this so significant? Well, as you know, a few years later, in 1948, it came time for President Harry S. Truman to decide what he's going to vote for in the United Nations. The United Nations had to decide, are we going to allow Israel to become a, a nation state or are we not going to allow them to become a nation state? And at the time, President Truman was receiving a lot of you know, pushback from both sides. The Palestinian side was telling him all these different things. The Zionist lobbyists were really pressuring him. Harry Truman really didn't want any more of it. He was sick of it. He said, you know what? America is going to abstain at the United Nations. We're not going to vote for Israel. I'm sick of this. He, and he refused. He said, anybody who is from the Zionist lobbyists that comes to see me, stop them at the door. Don't let them come see me. And he says famously, one guy did get in, and his name was Eddie Jacobson, his old pal, his old friend. Eddie Jacobson got a call in the middle of the night from the head of Benedbidi, and he called him and he said, listen, Eddie, you're the only guy who could get through to him. God put you in this situation so that you could, because you're, you were a childhood friends with, with Harry Truman, you could save the fate of the entire nation of Am Yisrael right now. So, of course, Eddie, being the person that he was, he took a flight in the middle of the night and he went to the White House. And he, he told the, uh, the president's secretary, he said, listen, I'd like to meet with the president. And he says, listen, Eddie, you can meet with him. You're good friends. But please don't talk to him about the quote unquote Palestine affair. He doesn't want to hear it. So Eddie gets to the White House. He sees Harry Truman and they're kind of silent. It's a little bit awkward in the beginning. They're talking one, one to the other. They're catching up a little bit. And then Truman breaks the question. He says, listen, Eddie, why'd you come see me? He said, you haven't asked me for anything since the day I became president. Is there something you want from me? And Eddie says the following words that will really live in history. He says, listen, I want you, first of all, to, to allow Chaim Weitzman. He came from Israel, and you're not letting him in the White House. He wants to see you. He wants to meet with you about something of national import for the state of Israel. And he says, I don't want to meet with him. I'm sick of it. Enough. Hadja, he says, basically. And then Eddie says, your hero is Andrew Jackson. He noticed in the corner of the, of the room, he saw a statue of Andrew Jackson. He says, I have a hero too. He's the greatest Jew alive. And I'm talking about Chaim Weitzman. He's an old man and he's very sick. And he's traveled thousands of miles to see you. And now you're putting him off. This is not like you, Harry. So at that moment, Harry Truman swivels his chair around. He looks out at the beautiful rose garden at, outside the White House. And he, he's, you know, at that point, Eddie Jacobson sees him drumming on his desk. He sees that he's thinking. And Eddie's thinking, I got him. I got him. And of course, he swivels around in his chair, does the president. And he looks at Eddie Jacobson. He says, listen, you bald-headed son of a gun. And he didn't say gun, but I'm not, it's a, it's a family program. I can't say what he said. 
He says, listen, you get Chaim Weitzman in here before I change my mind. And he says, and I allowed him in. And at that point, they meet with, with, the, with the President Truman. And Truman says that Chaim Weitzman is one of the most remarkable people he's ever met in his life. One of the kinds of leaders that you read about but seldom see. And now I'd like to show you a quick clip before we, we end. Let me know if you could hear it. If you have issues hearing this, please let me know. Dr. Weitzman is a wonderful man, one of the wisest people I think I ever met. He was a leader, one of the kind that you read about and seldom see. We had a long, long conversation, and he explained the situation from his viewpoint, and I listened to him very carefully. On my desk at the White House, I used to keep a quotation from Mark Twain, which said, always do right. This will gratify some people and astonish the rest. As was his habit, the president's final decision gratified a nation and astonished the world. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new state of Israel. After the recognition and the state of Israel came into being, Daddy's role became even more important because there was no ambassador yet. Every bit of business that was done between Israel and the United States came through Eddie Jacobson. It came through our living room. It is important to speak truth to power. It is important to um, maintain your friendships. Daddy was in the hospital for a short period of time and I went to call on him. I stood next to his bed and he said, you know, I spend all this money going to and from Washington with all of the this business I have to transact there for the, the new little state. I won't have anything to leave you. And I said, Death, you're leaving me the best thing of all. This is quite a heritage I have. So that video is from APAC, and I think there's something so special about it because it shows us something so emotional, something so deep, that it's this happenstance occurrence that these two men were friends, that this guy, not only did he realize his place in Jewish history, he went and he, he really succeeded in grasping that opportunity. He realized that he was the guy, almost the same way that... Uh, that Mordechai tells us there, don't think that you could just escape this. Hashem is going to work out his plan one way or another. It's just a matter of which side of history you want to be on. So Eddie Jacobson is this remarkable individual. He played a role in Jewish history, I think, of the same, almost the same degree of Yosef HaSadiq. And it comes back to what we spoke about in the beginning. It comes back to realizing no matter what challenge you're facing, no matter the difficulty that you're going through, no matter 
what's getting you down, whatever's getting you depressed at the time, you know what? This thing has a half-life. This thing is going to either be something that you allow to really depress you. You could allow these, these difficult emotional experiences to harden your heart, or you could allow them to open your heart. You could allow them to be things that really transform the way that you interact with other people. They could transform the way that you relate to life. And I think Hashem is sending us all that message through the story of Yosef and through Jewish history, and especially through the story of Eddie Jacobson. It's that, you know, don't lose faith. Don't lose faith that there is a plan, that there is a story going on behind the scenes. But you know what? That plan will mean nothing. It will mean absolutely nothing. And you could live the life of an atheist, basically, if you don't, you know, recognize that plan, because it only means something if you embrace it. And if God knows that he has a partner in you, if you're the kind of guy that looks at, at the world the same way that Yosef does, and you say, you know what, this challenge is another opportunity that God is giving me to accept the path that he's putting before me and to move forward with the morality that I was instilled and the values that I have. So this Yom Atzma'ut, as we sit in our homes and during this time of coronavirus, a lot of us have lost loved ones. A lot of us are suffering tremendously. We could look at this as a real opportunity for growth. And my wish and my prayer is that when we do come back together, this is not just going to be a fleeting memory. This is going to be a turning point for a lot of us. It's going to make us hug our loved ones a little deeper. It's going to make us appreciate every time we look in the eyes of our loved, our, our loved ones. It's going, to, it's going to make us succeed even more in, in, throughout all the challenges that we go through. So that's my prayer for you. And Bezrat uh, Hashem, you should all be healthy. Michael. Be healthy. Yes. Michael Hazak Kuvaruch. It's Uncle Joey. Thank you, Uncle Joey. Michael. I want you to know, Michael, at the I end of the story, Yosef has Sadiq, you know what he said? All the things that I went through, he laughed about them, and that's what we're going to have when we see Mashiach. It's going to be for the Sadiqim a laugh. Hazatan, the people that are wicked, are going to cry because they're going to see what the opportunities they miss. I love it. I, I think that's exactly Michael. it. Yes. Michael, I hey, see David. your father's online. So, to quote the Godfather, Michael, I have high expectations for. I never wanted this for you. <laughs> You're fantastic. I love it. Ali, <laughs> give him the light from the God. Baby, dear. I love the clips. <laughs>